0: Join me as we skip to the end of a book, not the ending of the story, but further in the back, almost by the back cover, The Acknowledgements. I've always been fascinated by The Acknowledgements and find myself asking questions I wish I had the answers to. Are the people they thanked still in their lives? Do they regret not including someone? What's the meaning behind this inside joke or story? Well, now I finally get the answers to my questions. In this podcast, I'll talk to the authors and explore the acknowledgments. So flip to the back of the book with me and let's start there. So Sangu, I have one billion questions for you, so I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to narrow them down. But what I'd love is just first, you have such an interesting history, at least I think it is, where your civil engineer by education. And But then also have an education in creative writing. So that's where I want to kind of start is like, how did that all happen? Those are two interesting pieces to put together.
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, I think growing up, I always loved writing in the humanities, but I was geared towards a, a STEM career. I had gotten into the Cooper Union when I was in high school, which was a free school. So it was really hard to turn down a free education. And I would often say that's the reason I went there, but not the reason I stayed. And so I had a civil engineering connection in my family, and it's part of the book, too, is my grandfather was a civil engineer who worked in Burma for the British before quitting to join the freedom movement in India. And there my father grew up, he was the youngest of 13 children in this sort of like utopian experiment of sort of voluntary poverty, spinning your own cotton. My grandfather became a water diviner and was developing wells for the local villages. So I had heard this story, but I had never met my grandfather and he was, he died when my dad was only 16. So it was a bit away, but, but there was always something about that too. If there's a little bit of a connection and I was always interested in environmental issues. And so like my focus was leaning that way. And for a long time, I was like doing civil engineering, whether in school or in practice, but finding other avenues to work on, like animal activism or writing. And yeah, it was just like a series of different events where in college, I read a book that set me off on a different journey. It was about chimpanzees who acquired American Sign Language, and I did a summer program. There in Ellensburg, Washington. And that sort of opened my eyes to the ways chimps in the wild were being harmed. And when I went after I got my first job out of grad school and engineering, I learned that there was a primate sanctuary in Cameroon that was looking for someone to help with like water supply issues. So that was like a way for me to try to apply some of my engineering to like my animal interests and when i came back to the states after that a couple of things happened like a year later like my father passed away and i also found this activist magazine in new york city called sapia and which was just like a really wonderful like publication that combined sort of animal issues environmental social justice made all the connections and they had asked me to write about this Cameroon sanctuary. So I wrote my first article for them. And then a year later, I quit my engineering job to join them. And then the publication was like a dream job, but it had closed a few years later. And at that time, I was started figuring out what I wanted to do. Do I want to do engineering? Do I want to do writing? And I ended up pursuing a creative writing MFA while working for the city of New York on water supply issues. So in some senses, it was like one thing led to another, and a lot of things were all the things happening at the same time. But I do think they're more related than not, the science and the writing in terms of both being storytelling. I was thinking about this recently, and maybe the difference is in like more technical stuff, there's like a precision of language of trying to convey like one particular meaning. And I think in my writing, it's I wanna hold like all the meanings (laughs) in in the work. So I think there's like a little bit of attention, But, but in terms of the big picture and the micro and how they both work together and how they're connecting a lot of different things, I think there are similarities between the work I did in engineering and writing. The differences
0: too. I think what's actually cool about that combination is also that it gives you the opportunity to take some of the things you're clearly passionate about, even as it relates to animals, that and put it in a way maybe that people can connect with more. So you're not just talking from a very uh, scientific perspective. Perhaps empathize and feel emotion in a different way. And sometimes that's the thing that makes someone get to that point where they're passionate about it and want to support a cause. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's interesting. You talk about your grandfather as part of the freedom movement because my grandfather was as well. Wonderful. And so that's an interesting connection there. And I got to know him a little bit once he was much older from that And it's funny when I think of my memories of him, it wasn't this tremendous man that was part of all of these such important movements and was imprisoned for his part in the freedom movement. But just as my grandfather, when someone who had actually started the, I think it was actually maybe his uncle had started a library in the small village they lived in. And my grandfather was also a doctor and would take those that lived in poverty and not charge them and all of that. It's just interesting that there's all these parts of people. And as a child, I didn't know that it was part of this tremendous movement because he had all these pieces to him. The other part that's so interesting that you're talking about is I just, I'm so fascinated is your work in the, with the chimpanzees and within these rescues. What's something like if you had to, kind of summarize like a thing that you took away from those experiences, what would it be?
1: It's one of the most extraordinary things I've ever done in terms of taking care of baby chimpanzees. It's It was like such an honor and a privilege, but it's also like the circumstances which brought them to me were really tragic. In Cameroon, oftentimes the bushmeat trade there where chimpanzees are killed and sold as a delicacy product is very much tied to deforestation and logging. And the baby chimpanzees who were in my care were orphaned. So it was really sort of tragic circumstances. But being able to care for them and to see them start to form new bonds who are going to be like their family for the rest of their lives was pretty remarkable. And just how they're processing the world... And each of them is like completely unique individual with their own preferences and needs and seeing just, yeah, how their minds are working and processing. It was was an honor. And like, I think also it's amazing to have the opportunity also to wanting to see them in the wild, live free in the wild, because as, as wonderful as so many Sanctuaries are, I think they're still struggling with the fact that it's still a sense of captivity and captivity is really hard. <laughs> and, and the ones that I worked for were really great in trying to give the best lives, but there is a long-term trauma that these animals experience. And so it's both wonderful to see them recover, but also it's not an easy road for most of them. Uh-huh. Like I, yeah. It
0: reminds me, I don't know if you've read The Penguin Year. No. So it's this gentleman that was, is a wildlife videographer and he spent a year in the Arctic videoing and being there with the penguins. And it was kind of like, it reminds me of just this because I was like, oh my gosh, what an incredible experience for him. And it was, But then what I thought he was able to do so beautifully was also talk about it in terms of climate change and what's happening to the penguins and how they're living. And it was so educational in that way. It comes back to that, right? Because I felt like emotionally connected then to it. I think that's so important to tell those stories that like you're telling and that he was telling because that's sometimes as close as someone like me is going to get to it. And speaking of animals, so tell me more about the Literary Animal Project.
1: Yeah, sure. So it just started and it was a project. I got some funding from the Culture and Animals Foundation, and I'm hoping for it to be a sort of habitat to have these conversations that discuss sort of all the ways in which animal lives are portrayed on the page and both like the ethics and the challenges of it. And so I really appreciated the examples you've set so far too. And these questions of like, how do we write about animals on the page? to give them agency, as well as invoke the reader to care? And and how do we get the reader to hold these really heavy burdens in terms of what is happening to animals and all beings on the planet and come away with being guided by truth and compassion and not despair?
0: What are, like, when you think of more, like, long-term goals of this project, what does that look like for you?
1: Yeah, and right now I started a like a substack newsletter. I'm hoping to have some conversations with different writers talking about different themes. I have a few maybe curated projects. I think there's something I want to do around like witnessing an expos and the both the ethics and the care around. Being witness to this, I've been in a very much a whale kick recently. <laughs> Whales have been coming to me in all forms of media. And there's a lot of, there's many tremendous books that I've read recently. Fathoms by Rebecca Giggs, Undrowned, Alexis Pauling, Gums, and a couple of short story by Taswami, And there's a new poetry book, Whale Aria, coming out by Rajiv Mohabir. So I'm hoping to do something (laughs) with that. I have this other project that I'm thinking about. I was reading a lot of Calvino and he has his book, Invisible Cities. And I've been thinking about invisible animal cities and all the ways we interact with animals in cities and trying to connect with different writings about urban animals in literature. But I'm hoping that whenever my book comes out and I go on tour, I can also use it as a thing to learn about the animals and the communities of people who care about the animals in all the places that I'm going. So there is this book, Experimental Animals by Talia Fields, and she wrote about these anti-vivisectionists in France. This one woman who was married to the father of vivisection, but she was an anti-vivisectionist. And the book draws so much from archival research, but the archival research is all about like the men in science. And Mm. she's telling the story of the women and the animal activists and the animals juxtaposed. But one of the things I remember clearly is basically the women were Trying to save all the street animals from the vivisectors, so they divided like the streets of Paris and took territories to collect the strays and get them to safety. And so I just love thinking about that, even in the modern sense of I live in New York and I know a lot of activists in New York. And there's like the people we have like our little phone tree of if someone finds someone like who who goes to where. And just thinking of that, like in in most places there are people doing this kind of invisible work. So so. It's still in nascency, but there's like an Invisible Animal Cities project that mm-hmm. I want to be doing. Yeah,
0: it reminds me a lot when my dog, Layla, is a rescue. And I think since that, like looking into rescues and all of that, what I just realized, like just thinking about invisible, that's how I, the people that are working within these rescues, I just feel like in a way they are invisible. Like the tremendous work they're doing and yeah. not even just there, but the, path even that a dog is taking, like Layla came from Texas and that there were people that were like, I'm going to transport this dog. I'm going to rescue the mom really who was pregnant. And that's phenomenal. and just gave me an even bigger appreciation for what's going on. It's not just showing up at the rescue and here, I want this dog. There's so much going into it. And people that are very often just volunteering and giving their time.
1: Yeah, I, I love that you're saying that too. And I think it ties to also my appreciation for acknowledgements, because the acknowledgements are really where you can highlight all this invisible labor that are that's required. I think that is like my deep attachment to reading acknowledgements too, and that I want to give back to that sort of, yeah. But yeah, I too have a rescue who Came from Georgia and she was shot in the face and jumped at a shelter. And then again, a group did a surgery, brought her up to New York. And it's,
0: there's so much involved in this and yeah, it is
1: unacknowledged.
0: Yes. And so thinking of the acknowledgments, which is how we got connected because a mutual friend had read an article where you were featured through the New York Public Library, talking about your research. And you have a chunk where you talk about, and I love this, I'm going to read it, where the question was, what's the most interesting thing you learned from a book recently? So you say, I love pouring over acknowledgements because they lead me to other work and shed light on the invisible labors and friendships responsible for our knowledge. And then you talk about in the book, the last eight Thanks his translator. And so then you ended up down that road. And what I loved and related to is that's how I sometimes describe it in a similar way. Of I'll just end up down this rabbit hole. Sometimes it was the content of the book, of course, as well, then even about something that comes out of the acknowledgments. So I loved that you shared yeah. that. Yeah. So tell me more about your experience with reading the acknowledgments.
1: I love acknowledgments and as a reader. I often read them early and last, like sometimes not first, sometimes first, but usually like maybe when I'm like 20 pages in and I'm, I'm really excited about something, I have to flip to the end because I might be curious of where they traveled or where some of the information came from. And and it's it's a different experience also when you read it early because you don't know half the people in it. And then by the end, you, it's I look forward to it, especially if it's a good book having something more to to read after the book is over and comforting myself in the loss of the ending of a book by reading acknowledgments so i i enjoy them as a reader and as a researcher like when i'm researching my book i had this magnificent fellowship at the new york public library and i had a little room with the shelves i still have access to the room and it's just the coolest thing and but when i'm reading some of the more academic or scholarly works that I'm drawing from, sometimes the acknowledgements come first, so you're confronted with them right away, and I find that in some of the more academic texts, the acknowledgements are like, just they're more personal, they're, they tell the origin story, there's like the heart of it, and so I get way more out of reading them, like the acknowledgements and the introductions, than the text is fine and probably learn some things, but there's something like really beautiful at the heart of it, of the relationship of the author to the material and how they met or what the driving questions were. And, and oftentimes whoever they're talking about, like that person's book I'll look into. And like, that's where I find most of the next steps of research is people and who they think. And then at some point, like I gather this Mass and I've been I've been doing a lot recently, um, trying to learn about ancient Tamil poetry. And then at one point, like all the books are talking to each other, like all the scholars. And so you these names I had never heard of from before, but now they're like a family on my shelf, and they're all talking
0: to each other. And I love that too. Oh, I love that. And what's motivated this look into this Tamil poetry? My
1: family's from Tamil Nadu and my grandfather's ashram in, in Kalakurchi, where my grandfather grew up, was there. And so I first wanted to just like try to relearn Tamil. I was born here, but I spent a couple of years when I was a baby in India. My mom went back to do a social work master's there. So my first language was Tamil. And then I came back here and it was pretty much displaced. But I thought it would be helpful, like just to have it in my subconscious while I was writing and then i found a bunch of different things that led me to the the tamil poets so i was taking zoom lessons with my tamil tutor and i had another i've had a couple of just good mentors in the in in different fields another friend had sent an excerpt of my book to her father who reached out to me to offer Dousing lessons, water divining lessons. And so we had started and he had also asked me about Tamil poetry. I was telling him my interest. And I have another section of my book, which comes from time I was in Rwanda and I had a excerpt that was in Rwandan that I needed to get translated and I, it was in a journal that I carried around since two thousand and five that I just got translated. And my translator is also telling me about the similarities between Indian languages and African languages, and a book that blew his mind about the philosophies that I requested on my shelf in the lab. and <laughs> And it all was like making sense, too, because they all were pointing to, these early mythologies of like a lost continent between India and Africa and mm-hmm. Kumari Kandma and or it was like Lemuria where the lemurs had a little bridge, but so I think there was just it was just all roads were leading me to this place. But then when I started getting into the poetry, what really excited me was a lot of the philosophy that I'm still learning. That it seems as though like that there's such a connection to the natural world, and it's not like a separate thing. And a lot of the things that we talk about now about like climate literature or eco fiction or things like that, like they were doing this 2,000 years ago. Or what we think about in science about studying grief in animals and acknowledging they have feelings that these poets from way back in the day uh, were able to capture the sort of emotional lives of animals and how they responded to drought and rain and fear and being caught in a net and so I felt like they're like these early forebears in the sort of animal rights literature some of them not all of them but and that there is like there was an ecological grammar that it was divided into these different landscapes and they paid such close attention to like when things happen time of day and time of year and any tree is united is like with whoever lives in that tree and so, there's something about that, and I think about that in our modern sense of like how we've we don't understand this grammar anymore and or we have this new grammar that might be more vulgar that <laughs> <don't know>. yeah. <laughs> so I don't know it was just really helpful. And I think the poet poems are divided into these two categories, which is called agam and puram, like inness and outness or but I think. They did both, and I'm interested in both like that sort of inner world and the outer world, and how we're reconciling with both. So, I think they were giving me language for things I'm thinking about now with inner and outer grief and this connection to this landscape. So, I don't know, I've been fascinated, but I'm reading all the commentaries in English. My Tamil well, tutoring is very basic, and I'm still like two year old, but I'm trying to have the sophisticated literary scholarship <laughs> as well. <laughs>
0: What's, I think what's really cool about what you've done, and I'm even like considering for myself now, like how am I doing this or am I not taking the opportunity to is you've taken all of these like facets of your life, your interest in animal welfare and your civil engineering and your writing and your background, your, your heritage and your family and pulled it all together for one path, which is just so cool. think that's just so interesting that you've been able to do that and take it in all these different directions.
1: I think like writing this book has been a way to to incorporate all the different parts of me. And I I think it's taken me a while to realize that too, because I think I had different hats and I'd be a certain person and I'd be a different person. And I think it, it can be kind of liberating to be like, how do I bring all of the parts? So it's, And it's, I think the past year I was working for uh, on our city's water supply for many years. And I quit last year to really devote to this book. And then when I did, I just had all of these things. My friend Leslie will always quote Rumi back to me of what you seek, seeks you. So it doesn't really like with the Tamil Sangam poets, even if I'm translating Kenya Rwanda and like it's getting me there, like whatever I'm doing gets me there. And so I've just been able to really take note of it and accept it. Because I think so much of my path is, I think with the science background, when you're doing experiments or whatever, like the key is, so it could be like replicated, your process is simple. And then none of what I'm doing is replicable, you know, like (laughs) it's always like random, like whatever book I pulled out on the shelf that I happen to stumble upon has led me a certain way. And maybe I would have gone a different way somewhere else or maybe I would still get there but it would be a different journey but I think just accepting it and and when you're so it, I think it I'm just trying to pay attention to and be grateful for the sort of like feeling of like serendipity that coming although like another friend also was saying to not discount the labor
0: involved to for that serendipity so I think it comes with making space for it yeah sounds like you did yeah So I would love to hear about the book. So Governing Bodies, tell me about it. I'd love for you to read a part of it. Tell me when it's going to come out, all of it.
1: Great. Thank you. So I've been calling this book Governing Bodies a Katina, which was a word I learned from a subtitle from one of the books on my shelf at the library. It was a book. That was a vegetarian history, anthology of vegetarian thought, The Ethics of Diet. It was called a catena of authorities, deprecatory of the practice of flesh eating. But the word catena is a chain of linked texts. And in soil science, it's a series of soil layers down a slope that each are distinct but connected. And when I saw that word, it was also something that sort of triggered if I have all of these sort of disparate things. And I know in my heart of hearts that they're all connected, but they're also know they're not the same so it's like i'm doing all this work where i am uncovering a lot of variations of themes and they're similar there are they're different but they're connected and so that was a helpful frame the book i think the origin story really is when i lost my father in 2003 I was realizing all the things that sort of were lost in that process in terms of his his like learning more about him, which was so much tied to his childhood and then this grandfather that I never met. So those were my earlier curiosities, but I don't, at that time, I wasn't thinking about a book at all. I was just, these were the things I was obsessing about. And at the same time, I was trying to figure out how to do more animal stuff, or just to align my professional life with my ethical beliefs. And so all those things are happening at the same time. So this book, I call it Governing Bodies, which is like a lyrical reckoning of how bodies, both human, water, animal, are controlled and liberated. And right now it's set into these three parts. And I worked on the middle last year when I quit, like I had different things and I was writing into this gap and I ended up writing this letter to my father. That's like a hundred pages. And I didn't know if I was going to be able to sustain the epistolary form for that long, but I really loved it because I was able to, also when I was doing all this research about Indian and Tamil literature and Kalakurchi I didn't want to have this very pedantic scholarly voice. And, I, and like, I'm just coming from it from like someone who's just learning and processing. And so I just wanted someone to process things with.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and I didn't want it to be this explanatory, let me explain India to you or I or <laughs> have to explain a lot of things that I think take away from the craft or like the poetic voice. And then I realized like maybe my first part, which I'm going to read from now, right now it's just written. I think it might be shaped towards orienting towards my grandfather. And the third part, which I think is focused on my life in the last 10 years or so. And I might be orienting it towards a future me. But I think those might just be helpful for me to get it down. I'm not sure if they're going to stay in the letter form there, but I am attached to it in the middle. also because just for the past 10 years or so, I started, it's hard to know what to do on like death anniversaries and and but I started to do this letter writing process which isn't the letter that's in the book but stems from a lot of the things I've been thinking about but so I just felt like it was very organic for me because I did have a letter writing process already to my father and it was something I really looked it was just something I felt good about doing and his birthday and death day are so close Mm -hmm. so it was just like a good like a thing I like to do But so, yeah, I think, as you said before, like, I'm trying to combine all these aspects of my life in this book, and it is being published by Milkweed Editions. I don't have a publication date left. I'm still working through another draft, and then the way these things go, it's like a year from then is (laughs) when it'll be out. So likely 25, 2025, but I've been enjoying the process. So do you want me to read from, I can read a little bit? I would love that. Great. So I open with this. What you must understand is that when I tell you a story about my body, I cannot separate it from a story about water. And a story about water is also a story about family. And a story about family is rooted in the earth. And when I tell you about the earth, I must tell you about elephants and chimpanzees, cows and chickens, coral and trees. What harms one body harms all bodies, like tributaries to the same river, our stories are entwined. The Irrawaddy River in Burma is named after the mythical multi-trunked white elephant, Iravata, whose name is derived from the Sanskrit word, Iravat, one who is produced from water. My family history is a story produced from water. If I were to trace my grandfather's engineering career, I'd follow it down the Irrawaddy River, if I were to trace mine, I'd follow it from the streams in the Catskill Mountains through aqueducts and tunnels to New York City's pipes and faucets. My experience is also in the Yosemite Valley, Sierra Nevada snowmelt that gravity carries to San Francisco. It is on rooftops and in rain barrels in Cameroon in buckets in the Sonaga River. These lines of Alfred Lord Tennyson were passed down in my family from my grandfather to my father to me. And out again I curve and flow to join the brimming river, for men may come and men may go, but I go on forever. Tata, my paternal grandfather, worked for the British in Burma before moving his family back to the Southern in, to southern India in the 1930s to pursue a life of activism in the Tamil Nadu town of Gallaguchi. This was my grandfather's attempt to practice nonviolence while the society around him was teeming with oppression from both colonialism and the caste system. Fatha traded in his civil engineering post and became a water diviner to develop wells for communities previously denied access to water. Water and sanitation were closely linked to social justice. My father, the youngest of Fatha's 13 children, was born into this utopian experiment in Kalakrit. Revolution began by learning to spin. The children all wore homespun kadi clothes. Education was learning the landscape, climbing trees, drawing water, and reciting poetry. My father grew up studying Sanskrit and English in addition to speaking Tamil at home. Each day he copied a page of the dictionary by hand and memorized Shakespeare, Tennyson, Goldsmith, and others from a poetry collection Thatha gave to him. My father gave me this worn copy of memory, work, and appreciation so that I too could recite the same poems by heart. This book of British verse was the only physical artifact passed on between our three generations. I have never met my grandfather, but found it curious that father who quit the British in Burma to join the freedom movement in India, showered his children with the oppressor's literature. But I later realized that relationships are complicated, and perhaps non-cooperation need not apply to poetry. When I was 25 years old, I recited those lines of Tennyson to my father at Good Samaritan Hospital in New York, where I was born. I didn't know he was going to die or if he heard me. My father left the world in the same place I entered it.
0: Thank you. Oh, it's really beautiful. Thank you. Like a few things came to mind, like hearing the beginning part about the connections to water and all. It, you know what? I went on a webinar once and they were, how we can be happy, which <laughs> is such an odd topic, I realized. But one of the things was about living in a state of wonder. And I, love the concept of it because it was like you get pulled into the everyday of just life but then coming out of that sometimes and just being like look at this world around me and being in this part of the whole world and the connection around everything so that's what that reminds me of and I love how you're talking about relationships and I realize this is an audio thing but I know you can see me uh, getting teary so you talking about reading to your father in the hospital, it just was powerful for me because I I lost a friend recently and the last time I saw her was in the hospital and reading and words were such a big part of our relationship. Mm-hmm. And that was what I did too. I took a book, The Paris Bookshop i believe it's called and i started reading from and have the same hope that she heard me reading to her as well so that's meaningful to me that those words were also something that connected you and your father and your grandfather actually in this case
1: yeah no thank you for sharing that so beautiful and meaningful for me me to hear too
0: (laughs) and when you're talking about writing this letter I was thinking actually, her birthday is actually coming up and you were talking about what to do around those timeframes that are significant. And I think that's such a lovely way to communicate my thoughts, even if they're just a letter to her that no one ever sees. So so thank you for that.
1: No, it's felt really like wonderful to do. And the letters I was, I would just write them and not look at them. Like I wasn't looking to publish them in that sort of way. And then this year on my dad's anniversary, I was trying to figure out what to do. Cause I, now I have like this hundred page letter that, and my friend told me about this app called Speechify, which you can listen to your text in different voices. So there's like a Snoop Dogg and a Gwyneth Paltrow voice. <laughs> and There's like an Obama-like voice. It's called Mr. President. And, but there is a woman who can read it in like a Tamil voice. Yeah. I listened to my letter, like on the, on the on my dad's birthday anniversary. It was like I I went to Roosevelt Island because I wanted to be around water and I wanted yes. to just spend time with this. And so, I just lay down on Roosevelt Island and listened to this middle part of my book.
0: <laughs> and wow, oh, I love and I just love that you've compiled so much over the years of those letters to him. Yeah. Okay, so I need to know if they're not there yet, or will there be acknowledgments? Oh. Song? Of course. Okay. So Um, then mark your calendar for 2022 about all those. Have you already written?
1: Again, since I've been working on this for a really long time. And so sometimes I'll just go into a dump. Like I have, I use like Scrivener as my writing tool. And so I I think in various Scriveners, I have some working acknowledgements of just trying to, you know, remember, because when you work on it for so long, there's so many, so many people along the way. But I'm thinking about like how to organize them, whether it's like chronology, th- thematically. And I want them to be like little mini stories too. I had a writing mentor, Louise DeSalvo, and she talked about how often writing is thought of as this like solitary and selfistic act and how we must write about the creative process as it occurs, it is nur- as it is nurtured between loving friends. And I don't know, I feel like I might use that in my acknowledgements, like have these other meta-acknowledgements of of just like practicing that. And I feel, as I said before, acknowledgements is acknowledging all this invisible labor. And I think trying to amass stories that are largely gone or erased and coming across all these other, even like the Tamil poets, it's remarkable that we have anything left of them. And so there's all these invisible labors that led to them being on my library shelf and yeah it is its own like philosophical thing that I'm trying to figure out like how I wanted to say it adequately which I don't know.
0: I think especially for you because of the impact acknowledgments have been for you I can imagine that adds to maybe your own challenge of how to to best um, acknowledge and show your gratefulness to those that supported this for you. And then also just, as you said, those the invisible parts of it. Yeah. Uh, and it's I, interesting. I, one of, the, oh, the, oh, go ahead. I have another
1: acknowledgement story is my book is being published by Milkweed Editions. And I had the backwards approach to getting a book contract where normally you get an agent and then they shop it around and, And I think it was really hard for a book like mine to, no one knew what to do with it. And they're like, it's too much going on in here. And can you just focus on this? And that approach is harder. And it happened the other way where a friend had nominated me for this Aspen Emerging Writers Fellowship. And one of the judges was an editor at Milkweed who read like 10 pages. And she reached out to me. And it was like the kindest letter because she was like, I love how you're pulling in all the things and you have the family and the water and the animals. And like, she loved all the things and wanted more of all the things or everyone else was like wanting to be, me to be smaller. And so that felt really good. And I was then like Googling her and she was like, I think we'd be a good fit. And I was Googling her and then I just Googled all the acknowledgments of like how people wrote about her. And there's another writer who wrote about her, Elizabeth Rush, with book Rising, and I can just read her- Thing, which also just made me feel like this is who I want to work with. Finally, my deepest thanks to Joey McGarvey, my exacting editor. Always you asked the toughest questions, the ones that made rising into something well wrought. And when I thought these sentences were complete, you returned to them again, generously and with attention, like a squeeze of lemon juice in your soup, your wisdom and wordsmithing or what make this book shine. And I just loved like shoes filled with people acknowledging, talk about invisible labor. So that was like reading acknowledgments was also part of finding my publishing house. I love
0: it. I love that too, because in articles I've read about writing in the acknowledgments who maybe don't feel as strongly about the impact of them, or everyone's just going through and always saying thank you to their publisher, editor, or such, just because they have to. What I love about that is it was just, it was so real. Like it it does actually show the impact and connection between a writer and their editor and their publisher and all of that. So I love it. Yeah.
1: And yeah, it's more than just like the pro forma thing. And that's what I just thought. People would just write paragraphs to her. and,
0: and... And so what, I don't know if you're reading Rising right now, but what is, what's on your next read or what are you currently reading right now? What do you like to read?
1: Sure. I'm reading a couple of things for... The Literary Animal Project. I just went to a virtual book talk about this book, The Creative Lives of Animals by okay. Carol Gugliati. Yeah. There's also another woman in this book. It's, a, it's an academic book by Duke Press Indifference um, by okay. Nisargadave. I had interviewed her a few years ago. At that time, she had written a book about queer activism in India and was working on a book about animal activism in India. And this is that book. And so I'm excited to read this. And also in the context of the just the harsh (laughs) political realities of modern India and how to be an activist and divorce yourself from the separate from the Hindu national politics of it. Um, It's very nuanced and interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So those are some of the things on your list. It's interesting because as I'm like looking at my books over here and I feel like now I actually want this to maybe go higher up. Have you read the big? So I had started listening to it a while ago, but I think I'm going to actually read it. And what I just think is interesting is like the remarkable story of New York by following the tri- trajectory of one of its most fascinating inhabitants, the oyster, and it's I think also just talks about the the environmental impact to the oysters through like this showing the history of New York. Wow. So I feel like that might be right up your alley as well.
1: <laughs> totally right up my alley. And I'm in the process of potentially returning back to work in the city. I was working on a water supply and now I'll be working on these stormwater blue belts, these nature-based solutions to handling stormwater and creating habitats but yeah I think the yeah I'm excited to read more about oysters and just the ways nature does the best work (laughs) more this (laughs) is the best water purification then yeah
0: and I will say so I just checked it does have acknowledgments and of course I try not to read and it's funny because you were saying you read them sometimes at the beginning and yeah. I would always be like, I'm going to leave it to the end. It's like my treat or my prize yeah. at the end, yeah. but I find it harder and harder to do. And it's just very cute because he's talking about lots of love to Marion and about how they're happy as oysters. Oh. No <laughs> to think, no. No reason to think clams are any happier just because they don't make attachments and can hop on one foot.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, and I was sharing with you like the sewer book that I was reading. They were also doing sewer references in Jessica Lee Hester's book, yeah. talking about fatbergs and making a comparison to the resilience of another relationship. <laughs> and her acknowledgement. I love it. I love it.
0: And another book I was just thinking of as you were talking. Oh, there it is. funny, you're talking about it true biz, so unrelated to animals per se. So I actually did finish reading it. it was, so it's a fiction, but it's talking about the students at a deaf school. Mm. And what I thought was just really interesting is throughout though, it, even though it was fiction, it was so educational in the deaf community in ASL, which you were yeah. talking in terms yeah. of communicating with animals and such as well, yeah. reading a book and reading the acknowledgments once like promotes us taking deep dives into other subjects and this really hard topics around how deaf schools have closed and how it's not supporting the children and adults and the deaf community. So, very interesting that way as well. Yeah,
1: I'll definitely check it out. I had read a book many years ago, it was called Train Go Sorry, and it was about. Lexington School for the Deaf here in New York and, and some yeah. of those debates about deaf education a long time ago. Yeah. And so it'd be interesting to hear it in this yes. too. I love your reading. Just the, this podcast premise is like wonderful, but I just love the wide array of books that you're bringing to it. So it's exciting for me too.
0: And that's it's funny you say that because that's probably been one of the unexpected joys Of doing this podcast is when I get a message from someone that says, I would have never read that genre or that kind of book, but I got to hear the author talk about it. And it made me curious and I wanted to read it. And I love that because I feel like a lot of people just feel like, oh, this is my genre. This is what I read. I can't read other things. But sometimes I think just hearing the author talk about it and their experience changes the way someone might look at it and give it a chance. And I think that's such a powerful thing. Like the more different kinds of things we read, I think just opens up our perspectives to everything in the world.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yeah, It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for getting curious about The Acknowledgements and remember to read from cover to cover. Check out The Acknowledgements on Facebook, Instagram, or com. There, you'll find more information on the books and authors that I talk about here.